Good evening. Next Sunday morning, we are going to have an incredible opportunity, and I appreciate all the things that are being done to help to prepare us for that. Um, I don't know, I've only been here a couple of years, don't know the, the history and the beginnings of Plum Full Sunday, uh, and um, I hope we can do all that we can to explain exactly what we have in mind with that. What we're trying to do is to invite our friends and our neighbors to be with us. We have at least two great opportunities while they're among us. We get the opportunity to perhaps help them to understand some of the distinctive nature of the worship uh, that we do and how we are organized. And we plan to do a little bit of something about that to help folks to understand some of the things that we may take for granted as we worship week by week. But also an opportunity to let them know uh, how we need them and what we are trying to do to glorify God in this community through things like our vision groups, uh, ways for them to uh, find a place to be involved and to uh, come to know God's Word better. So... I hope that you're trying to capitalize on that. I appreciate the uh, elders setting the example. You know, shepherds uh, are, uh, are best followed as we hear their voice and they are leading us in a distinct direction. I don't know the full extent of it, but I know that our elders have made 150 plus invitations to non-Christians or non-members here, mostly non-Christians, some who are members in other places, maybe who are no longer attending to try to encourage them to come. And we've gotten good feedback. And I know some others of you have done that. So the encouragement, the invitation that you've been given to go through your contacts and to uh, invite those who uh, aren't uh, here, those who need to hear God's Word, those who need to find the New Testament church, encourage them to come with you. Uh, there will be 0% chance of the folks that we don't invite that they'll be here. Who knows what percentage of folks will come. How many times those who are in sales, how many, how many calls do you have to make before you're successful? And so let's reach out this week and let's do all that we can. And, and ladies and, and men who do so, let's uh, make plenty of food so that, that they have enough to eat while they're here. Uh, and let's make it a day of spiritual and physical feasting. A pedigree has to do with the background or history of a person or a thing, especially that which is distinct in its quality or its nature. I know as a baseball fan and as an Atlanta Braves fan, one of my favorite players growing up was a man by the name of Jeff Burroughs. And the young man that I have in mind did not live up to his pedigree, nor did he live up to his potential. This young man's father, Jeff Burroughs, had won the 1974 American League MVP award, and he himself, playing for the Long Beach uh, Community Little League team, they went all the way, not just to the finals, but they won the Little League World Series, not just in 1992, but they repeated as champions in 1993. And then in college, he was a member of the uh, United States baseball team that won the gold medal in the Olympics. And he was the ninth player drafted overall by Kevin Towers by the San Diego Padres. But to say that he did not live up to his potential would be an understatement. Everybody expected that he should hit home runs, just like his famous father had done. And he tried the very best that he could, but the more he tried, the more miserable that he became. He earned the nickname The Bachelor because all he could hit was singles. But as he struggled and he and he grueled and grinded. It got worse and worse. 
He said it got to where it was miserable to go to the ballpark. He didn't mind if he struck out. After being traded a couple of times, this young man with such promise just dropped out of baseball. 2006 was his last year. Had a girlfriend, not a good influence in his life, and together they bought a house in Las Vegas, Nevada. And he said Old Sin City began to take its toll. He says that this city is not a place where you can be without a job and without goals and dreams and aspirations. And as a result of that, he said, my life was going down, 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 down. The elevator kept going. He was estranged from his family. He became addicted to drugs and alcohol, dropped out of life. But then something happened along the way. He began to realize how much he missed this game. And so he began to take some steps and he was reconciled to his family. He began to want to be in baseball again, and he began to do the hard work that was necessary to come back. Sean Burroughs had more going for him than just that good hand-eye coordination that you need, or even the ability to hit major league pitching. He had somebody who believed in him. Kevin Towers was the general manager for the San Diego Padres when he was drafted so highly, and now he was the general manager for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he saw something in him, and so he gave him another chance. I think we like those stories of redemption, those stories of individuals who are given and who capitalize on those second chances that are given. I'd like to tell you that Sean Burroughs went on to achieve Hall of Fame glory. He lasted about a season and a half after that and tried longer, but that was it. But five years between the time that he dropped out, he was able to do what most players who play the game can't do once. He did twice. He played in the major leagues. You know, the Bible tells us about those stories of second chances. You think about the story that epitomizes that the most, perhaps you would think of the story of the prodigal son whose father gave him a second chance. It's symbolic of God's desire to give penitent sinners another chance. And there are great texts in the Bible that would speak to us and would say to us that God is a God who longs to give us a second chance. When we've given up on ourselves sometimes, we need to realize that He will never give up on us. And so you have writers saying things like, Out of the depths I have cried unto you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice and let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I cry unto the Lord, Lord, my soul cries unto the Lord, and in his word do I hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. I, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him there is abundant redemption. And He will redeem Israel out of all of His iniquities. This is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 130. And in that psalm that I would like for us to look at tonight, there are some great truths that we need to notice with regard to the God of the second chance. I think sometimes we have a distorted view of God. When we look at God, we see Him as one who is waiting for us to slip and fall so that He can punish and condemn us. But literally, from the beginning of Revelation, we see a picture of God that is so much different from that. I'm not sure where it originates, this idea of a God who is so vindictive and wrathful. Perhaps it is the devil himself that would like us to believe that. 
Certainly it is a world largely ignorant of God's word and sometimes because of our lack of understanding this God. We have this idea that he's a strict, merciless judge who's just waiting to pounce on us. But you go to the very place where sin began and you see the incident where humanity is turned away from God. Eve being deceived and was in the transgression. First Timothy chapter 2, Adam following alongside into that. God knowing that in the face of this, that he was going to have to give his only begotten son, does not reach out and respond in wrath, but instead with mercy and kindness. You see a love in God that is always longing to save us and is longing for us to come back to him. And then in Genesis chapter 4, he's dealing with the first homicide. And as he comes to Cain, there's compassion again. Cain feels so emboldened that he asks for a reduced sentence. And God offers to protect him. When we begin to examine God and study in little hidden gems like Psalm 130, we see that our God is the God of the second chance. And there are some realizations that he wants us to make. If we are going to capitalize on a God that longs, that desires to save us and to forgive us, there are four things that we need to understand. Number one, we need to recognize where we are. I don't know how your psalm is inscribed. Not sure what it says. Sometimes the uh, heading over the psalm is a sinner's cry. Or maybe it's a prayer for mercy and help. But when you see this psalm beginning, especially one that's so hopeful, it may be startling, it may be a surprise to you that he doesn't start with joy and gladness. As he looks at the circumstances of his life, he says, I'm in a pit, I'm in deep despair. In fact, he paints it in a way that, at least in my opinion, is about as dark and as startling as can be done. And Bible writers do this other places. In Psalms chapter 69, in the very psalm that was read to us that Dawson read so well a moment ago, in the beginning of that psalm, he talks about being overwhelmed by those floods, that the waters are deep waters, that there's no foothold, that there's deep mire, and that there's a flood that overwhelms him. He finds himself in the deep and the distress, and he cries out to God for help. Then we also look at Jonah. How can we not think about his circumstances? Here is God's commissioned prophet to go to the people of Nineveh and to get them to come back to God. But he himself is away from God. And as he runs from God's direction in the other direction, you have him in that boat and that storm that arises. He knows that he's the reason why he's thrown into the depths of the sea. And as he does, the water calms and God's prepared to fish for him. And he talks about how he cried unto the Lord in his distress. He called to God from the depths of Sheol. And God heard his cry. But not only that, he says, I found myself in the deep and the billows and the the, the rafters rolled over him. Jonah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. You know, it's not very often that we look at the survivor stories from the Titanic. There aren't many of them around. But Eva Hart was one of them, and she recounted on one occasion what it was like on the night that the Titanic went down. I didn't realize this, but the Titanic sunk some 14,000 feet to the ocean floor. And it did so in two hours and 40 minutes from the time that it struck the iceberg. And a 300-foot gash was on the starboard side, and she talked about what she saw and what she heard. 
She said, as that ship went down, she said, I saw the horrors of it sinking. But even more dreadful, I heard the cries of drowning people. There may be some painful ways to die that exceed that of what the psalmist is speaking of here. But I can't think of a more frightening way to lose my life and to lose control than to be dropped into the depths of the sea with no hope of escape. And so the psalmist is painting the picture for us of where we are. But the sea that he's talking about, the depths that he describes is the depths of sin. In verse 3, he lets us know that that's what it is. That's why he talks about forgiveness in verse 4 and redemption in verse 7. The psalmist is painting for us the picture of where we are. And before we'll ever seek that second chance, we've got to understand the plight that we all face in common, and that's because of sin. And you'll notice that the psalmist doesn't just speak of his plight. He speaks of the plight of everyone else. And the way he lays it out for us is is that if God focused on all and took a mark of all of our iniquities, none of us could bear up under the punishment. Because all of us, as Paul would say in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I am going to receive the benefit of the God of the second chance, I've got to recognize where it is that I am. But then I also have got to recognize what it is that I need. The psalmist makes it clear with the problem being brought before us that there is a God that is presented who gives his blessings. There are characteristics of him. There are at least three characteristics of the blessings that he gives that the psalmist points out for us. The first one you'll notice is in verse 4, and that's forgiveness. And the theme, one of the themes in the psalms is of a God who longs to forgive And we need to be reminded of that because so often we have such a hard time forgiving ourselves. He heals all of our diseases because He is full of compassion. He is full of loving kindness, according to Psalm 103, verse 2 through verse 4. And so the psalmist says that there is forgiveness with Him, but there's forgiveness with Him so that He might be feared. So that we would stand in awe of Him, that the heart would jump and that the stomach would tremble. When I come to understand that God longs to forgive, but not only out of that, but there is a response that He wants in me when I recognize the forgiveness that He gives. I come to understand the awe, the dread, and the great power of God. And the God that possesses that power is the one who longs to put my sin away from Him. But there's not just the idea of forgiveness. There's the idea of loving kindness in verse 7. And this loving kindness is a mercy that is shown out of the motivation of love. Why is it that God is motivated to give me a second chance? Because he is full of this endless love. The New Testament tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see this uh, in the third blessing that he gives in this psalm, what we need. We need forgiveness. We need loving kindness. But we also need redemption. We need to be bought, bought back and brought back into a right relationship with him. And I love the idea that he tells us that it's abundant. It's not sparing. It is given freely. One paraphrase says that he has a thousand ways to save us. And the psalmist is not saying that there are multiple plans of salvation. But what he is saying is that we don't find ourselves struggling with a sin that he cannot free us from if we don't come to him. 
And so as the psalmist lays out to us the God who was the God of the second chance, we need to understand if we're going to get that forgiveness, we're going to have that reconciliation, that we've got to recognize where we are and we've got to recognize what it is that we need. But then third, he shows us that we need to recognize who it is that can give it, give it to us. As I look at this psalm, I see a decided emphasis on God. In this eight-verse psalm, the Lord is mentioned some seven times. And the psalmist, moved by the Holy Spirit, gives us two names for God here. He gives us Adonai and Yahweh. And as he addresses the idea of God Adonai, he is talking to us about a glorious, majestic king. He is the one who has all power. But then when he refers to him as Yahweh, he is speaking to the, about the one that is most holy, the self-existent one, the uncaused cause, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90 and verse 2. And so I put that together. I realize that he is perfectly pure. He is uh, reliant and consistent upon himself, depending upon no one else. But along with that, we have one whose majesty and whose glory is unexceeded. You know, you find yourself struggling sometimes, and there may be somebody in your life who likes you, or even loves you, who is rooting for you and wants to do whatever they can for you. But they may find themselves powerless, or at least not with enough power. The psalmist paints a picture for us of a God who not only wants to, but the God who most wants to save you is the one who is most able to do it. And you'll notice how he does it in the psalm. He says it is abundant redemption. He is able to redeem all iniquities. If we're willing to turn that over to Him, there is no depth to which we might fall, from which we cannot come, in order to come back to the God who waits to give us a second chance. But as I walk through this psalm, I notice something else. I realize... But if I'm going to receive that second chance, I need to recognize what it is that I need to do. I think about a baseball player like Sean Burroughs, a guy who was out of baseball for almost five years, who wants to make the determination or wants to make good on the determination to come back and play major league ball. You've got to understand what's involved in that. Those of you who play sports, you realize the early mornings, the running, the conditioning, the time in the batting cage, the time on, on the field going through those various drills and exercises. He did that and he worked hard until he made his way back. Or I think about the prodigal son that we mentioned earlier. He had to come to himself. He had to arise and he had to go. He had to acknowledge the changes that needed to take place in his life and he had to be resolved to do that. The psalmist here finds himself in a place where he knows that there are some changes that he wants to take advantage of, that there's hope and help even though he can't see it at the moment. And he mentions that there are two things that we must do in response to the God who longs to give us a second chance. This isn't all that the Bible has to say about it. But here are two significant things that he encourages the one who wants the second chance to do. You'll notice the first thing that he says is that we need to pray. Verse 1 and 2. Maybe we find ourselves carrying the baggage into the text or the, of the idea of the Calvinistic idea of praying through for salvation or the sinner's prayer. But here is one who is already a child of God who comes acknowledging his desire to cry out to God. And you'll notice that it's not just prayers. It, it goes beyond that. It is cries. It, it is 
uh, reaching out and, and pleading with God. And as such, one who sees his need to change. A penitent heart that calls one to cry out to God is the kind of heart that's going to be open to what God wants one to do to have the benefits of that redemption. But we also see in verse 5 and 6 that he needs to hope. And it's really hard for us to differentiate between hope and trust in this psalm. As the psalmist is speaking about that trust and that faith, it's interesting, isn't it, what he puts his hope in. He doesn't put his hope in his family, his spouse, his parents. He doesn't put his hope in his past works. He doesn't put his hope in his good works. He doesn't put his hope in his traditions. His hope is in the Word of God. And for the one who desires God's second chance, the hope is in accepting and submitting to the Word of God. And in submitting to the Word of God, one finds the hope of a pattern that shows one how to be reconciled to God. And if one is a child of God who's turned away... That one hopes in and submits to God's roadmap that leads back to the Father's house. You know, there's so many different types of psalms that point us in so many different directions. But as you look at this psalm in Psalm 130, it depicts the God who is the God of the comeback kids, the God who longs to give a second chance. He lays it out for us. He says, you need to understand where you are. You have to understand your plight if you're going to have that second chance. And you also need to recognize what it is that you need. What you need are divine resources. You need His forgiveness. You need His loving kindness. And you need His redemption. And you need to understand who it is that can give it to you. It is the God upon whom the emphasis is given in this psalm. And then, what is it that you must do? I love those comeback stories. Maybe it's Lance Armstrong coming back from cancer in the 1990s or Michael Jordan in coming back to basketball after an absence to go play some baseball. Or maybe it's Elvis Presley's comeback in 1968 or, or maybe it's Harry Truman's in 1948. I'd like to tell you that Sean Burroughs is in the Comeback Kid Hall of Fame, but I don't think he is. He washed out pretty quickly. But the prodigal son is in God's Hall of Fame. We've been talking about him for 2,000 years. Nobody had fallen any lower than he had fallen. But when he came to himself and came back home, God says, I want you to see into my mind and to see how I respond, no matter where you've come from, to come back home to me. And I truly believe that God would love to fill the records of all eternity with the story of the comebacks that are made today. It could be tonight that there's somebody in need of a comeback, to come back home to him. You've not been gone too long. You've not sunk too low. That you can't come back to Him. He longs to receive you. He longs to forgive you. Have you obeyed God's Word to become His child? Maybe you're ready to respond to His grace in obedient faith. To be baptized to have your sins washed away. Mike's going to lead us in a song of encouragement. If it's your invitation, if that's your need, we'd love to help you. And if you're a child of God who needs our help, our prayers, God's strength, and His forgiveness. He longs to wait. He longs to give a second chance. If that's your need tonight, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?